You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The U.S. withdrawal from the Iranian nuclear deal is widely taken as heralding a new round of cyber conflict. Cyber attacks on critical infrastructure are seen as an asymmetric way of war. The Alanite threat group is observed successfully reconnoitering U.S. and U.K. electrical power grids. Jack in the Box does nasty things with images. Signals self-deleting messages don't, or at least they don't always. And U.S. sanctions may be putting ZTE out of business. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, May 10th, 2018. As the U.S. announced its intention to withdraw from the Iranian nuclear deal agreement, concerns have risen over the prospects of renewed Iranian cyber offenses. Iran had been active against a number of targets in cyberspace, but its state-directed cyber attacks went into partial eclipse in 2015. That lull is generally attributed to Iran's response to relaxation of sanctions that followed conclusion of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, popularly known as the Iran Nuclear Deal, in July of 2015. Under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, Iran undertook to limit or delay certain aspects of its nuclear weapons program. On April 30th of this year, U.S. and Israeli authorities stated that Iran had failed to disclose a past covert nuclear program to International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors, and this Tuesday, President Trump announced that the U.S. would withdraw from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The U.S. decision to withdraw from the agreement is expected to reverberate in cyberspace, with concerns about critical infrastructure becoming sharper. We heard from Drago's CEO Robert M. Lee, who reminded us that when tension rises between states, so does the targeting of industrial control systems. Lee said, quote, In this case, activity moves beyond conducting early reconnaissance to gaining access to infrastructure companies and stealing information that could be used at a later date. However, simply having access to the information does not mean an attack is easy or imminent. Avoiding such tension while also defending against such aggressive efforts is the goal. End quote. Thus, cyber risk can be reliably forecast to follow geopolitical tension. Phil Nire, vice president of industrial cybersecurity at CyberX, a company specializing in ICS, SCADA, and industrial IoT security, reminded us that, quote, Iran has a long history of going after U.S. targets, 
including the massive DDoS attacks they conducted on 24 U.S. financial institutions during 2012 and 2013. Phil Nire sees cyber operations as an asymmetric way of warfare. Quote, cyber is an ideal mechanism for weaker adversaries like Iran because it allows them to demonstrate strength on the global stage without resorting to armed conflict. I expect that Iran will continue to escalate its cyber attacks on U.S. targets, but will keep them below the threshold that would require a kinetic response from the U.S. End quote. So far, Iran's damaging attacks have come against targets located in its regional rivals, like Saudi Arabia, but in principle they could be extended to the U.S. or elsewhere. Observers think it likely that a cyber attack attributable to Iran would draw a strong U.S. reprisal. Recorded Future offers a lengthy assessment of Iran's cyber establishment. One interesting note, Tehran depends on competing contractors for most of its offensive capabilities. There are at least 50 organizations that vie for the work. Studies of wiper malware issued this week by Cisco's Talus Group are also worth reviewing as U.S.-Iranian tensions rise. Shamoon, a wiper used against Saudi Aramco in 2012, has generally been attributed to Iran. There are, of course, other threats to infrastructure out there. Industrial cybersecurity experts at Dragos this morning released a report on Alanite, a threat actor the company says has been actively prospecting U.S. and U.K. electrical utilities. They've observed watering hole and fishing leading to ICS recon and screenshot collection, Alanite resembles the Russian Palmetto Fusion Group, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security described last year. Its target set is similar to dragonflies, but Dragos assesses Alanite's technical capabilities as being significantly different from those exhibited by Dragonfly. When Alanite first made its appearance last year, its successes had been confined to penetration of business and administration systems but Dragos now confirms that Alanite had succeeded in extracting information directly from industrial control systems. Coming up in the next few days, ICANN, the nonprofit responsible for coordinating the maintenance of Internet domain names and numbers, are expected to implement an interim plan in response to GDPR in an attempt to align privacy laws with the WHOIS system. Jonathan Metkowski is a VP at RiskIQ, and he sees ICANN's plan as a potential serious threat to the open and public Internet. Because the WHOIS database has evolved, it's difficult to presume that every person would have expected WHOIS to be used for consumer trust and protection purposes or, you know, DNS security. At the same time, it's very difficult to go so far as to say that given the public nature of WHOIS and over time how increasingly available privacy and proxy registration services have been over the years, that people would not expect that these kind of processing activities take place with their data. So while consumer protection and consumer trust are not, when I look at it, the technical mission of ICANN as defined within its bylaws, they're more than just compatible with ICANN's mission. Therefore, ICANN's temporary policy that I expect that they would be putting forth in the next several days in my opinion, should require new GTLD who is database operators to inform new registrants in a GDPR compliant manner about the legitimate interests that are relied upon to share who is personal data with ICANN, 
intellectual property rights holders, law enforcement, threat intelligence analysts, and incident response responders for consumer protection and consumer trust. So if ICANN itself doesn't hold its GTLD, who is database operators, accountable for abusing their discretion or intentionally failing to assess these legitimate interests in thick who is data requests, I think there'd be significant foreseeable damages that would inevitably result. So as far as the public who is, I think ICANN needs to be make sure that newly registered organizational domains, it's not actually ICANN that needs to make sure, it's those collecting the data, it's GTLD who is database operators. They need to make sure that when they collect for newly registered organizational domains, who is information, registrant details, that they don't collect personal data in email addresses without having unambiguous consent to do so. And because otherwise, this is used as an excuse, basically, not to include organizational emails in the public who is you know, because it creates concerns under GDPR for some. I think that ICANN and its board members have a fiduciary duty to ensure that they don't issue a temporary policy for who is output that causes unnecessary DNS abuse. Uh, They should expect damage reports to be collected. Without accountability, it's meaningless. ICANN's job is not to enforce GDPR Its job is to fulfill its mission consistent with applicable laws, including GDPR. What's required is that there be a way to hold GTLD, who is database operators, accountable for either intentionally or recklessly, either failing to conduct a GDPR-required legitimate interest analysis for who is data requests, or abusing their discretion now, ultimately, like I don't want to see the, the internet fragmented like this for GD, GTLDs. That is an SSR concern, as many people have, have, have expressed. You know, the community has been working on a tiered access model. Lack of accreditation is not supposed to infer, like be used to infer lack of GDPR compliance. And a legitimate interest analysis is required by GDPR. You know, we need to streamline this process, or it's going to be, uh, or it's going to cause you know damage to the internet because there'll be fragmentation, and in practice, it will just be you know very very difficult situation. That's John Matkowski from Risk IQ. If you're looking for more of the details on this topic, Risk IQ has a blog post on it. It's on their website. Security company Aqua describes an image pull vulnerability in Windows. They're calling it Jack in the Box. Aqua has a proof of concept that shows the possibility of extracting malware from a maliciously crafted image into any directory on the target system. Exploitation occurs during the process of unpacking the image. If you're a user of the self-deleting messaging app Signal, take note, Signal's disappearing messages apparently don't disappear, at least not by default. Self-deleted messages persist for some indefinite period in macOS's notification history. You may want to turn off notifications. Chinese device maker ZTE may be down for the count. U.S. sanctions that prevent it from buying from U.S. suppliers have induced it to cease major operations. Deprivation of Android software and Qualcomm chips appear to have been the final blow. 
One hesitates to sound taps on such short notice for any company, especially one as large as ZTE, but things certainly don't look good. A representative reaction may be seen in Australian telco Telstra, which has announced it will no longer sell ZTE phones. It isn't dropping them for security reasons, but rather because it seems unlikely to them that ZTE will be able to continue to deliver and maintain its products. It's a globalized supply chain, and no industrial nation is exempt from the consequences of that globalization. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Robert, welcome back. Um, I wanted to discuss uh, today something that you have published that is called the sliding scale of cybersecurity. Can you take us through uh, what's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a paper I published a couple years ago at SANS, uh, and it's been an extremely useful model, and I've been humbled by how many folks in the, the community have found it valuable. So when I, when I talk to folks and they say, oh, what do you do? And, oh, I do cybersecurity. I'm like, well, that's not a thing. Like, what do you actually do? Uh, and it's good to know where we can make investments and what the return on that investment would be. Um, so in the scale I put forth, there's really five categories of things you can do. On the left-hand side of the scale is architecture, sort of planning and building the systems with security in mind and logging and things that you need, and, you know, sort of getting it right from the start, patching, maintaining it, et cetera. Um, the next over would be passive defense, which is the technologies and tools that you can add into the environment to give you visibility or protection from some of the threats. Um, the next is active defense, which is the analyst, the human component. This is where the human gets involved to investigate and correlate and respond and hunt and, and be in the environment, which is really, to me, the, the most powerful piece when you build towards that because you're putting human defenders against human adversaries. Uh, next is intelligence, which is, you know, we, we look through 
uh, intrusions and collect data and try to extrapolate it into useful intelligence on the threats. And finally is offense. And I, I even put in the scale, yeah, absolutely. The offense is technically one of those things that you can do if it's for self-defense actions, not retribution, but um, sort of like legal countermeasures. And really the whole point of the scale was originally to kind of push back against offense, saying, look, if you pattern out all that you could do, the highest return on investment is on the left-hand side of the scale, moving to, to the right. So if you build it right to begin with, you have a good defensible architecture with good passive defenses, the amount that you have to spend into active defense to get a good return on investment is minimal. If you don't know what your architecture is, you don't have tuned firewalls, I don't care how many SOC analysts you hire, it's going to be a hard time for you. If you've got a well-understood architecture and, and, and well-tuned environment, I mean, you eliminate a lot of the noise that you, you need less um, human analysts to actually facilitate that. To be quite blunt, I've always told folks, look, if, if you know, for the folks that think that they can go back and hack back, you know, like, oh, I've, I've been had and I'm going to go hack back. Like if you, if you think uh, they, that's going to be effective for you, you're wrong. It's, it's, it's a very poor return on investment in terms of the resources required to do that. And we need to actually invest where appropriate, build a roadmap for where we want to be and make sure the architecture and passive defense investments you're making um, align with where you want to be with your active defense and intelligence components or make sure that the you know investments towards the right-hand side of the scale with active defense and intel actually align with what you already have in architecture and passive defense. And do you find that uh, people sometimes get these out of order in, in terms of uh, how they take on these various items? All the time. Um, so it's not really that you have to move one category to the other. But if I looked at your security program and where you've invested overall as an organization, I'd expect almost a, kind of a waterfall kind of approach where there might be, you know, 40 percent into architecture, 30 percent into passive defense, 20 percent into active defense, you know, 10 percent into Intel or something like that. Um, it, it won't always align with that. That's fine. But but you you need to make sure you're not completely off balance. If 80 percent of your budget is going towards active defense and Intel, well, there's no way that you're actually getting a good return on investment because you definitely need to invest a lot more in your architecture and passive defense. Um, I, I, I do a lot of the active defense and Intel stuff. My classes at SANS, my company, I mean, everything's around like, oh, cool, let's go do hunting and intelligence. And this is really cool stuff. But it's worth noting it's not the starting place. Hmm. I mean, I, I see companies all the time that, that really love the idea of where you can be with like a SOC and they really like the cool new tools for investigations and response and orchestration. And, oh, man, if we get this new intelligence, um, we're really going to understand the adversaries. But then they don't have an asset inventory and they don't have tuned firewalls and they don't have an instant response plan. And, and you sort of have to push back and say, look, you want to get to this place. But there are steps along the road to take to make it an actual good investment. All right. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. 
That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.